Yes. And when it came in the mail the first time and you opened the box, were you excited? Yes. There, it was... It was really special <laughs> just to hold it in my hands and see the beautiful back cover and thumb through it. I, I, it it's, uh, it's a once, for me, once in a lifetime experience. <laughs> well, oh, first yeah. of all, I, I, I want to, just picking up on that once in a lifetime experience, <laughs> many, all of my friends who have had the experience of having suddenly an illness that they didn't expect to have. Mm -hmm. Generally, uh, I think we've, we've heard it about people who have cancer and then either get better or aren't getting better. And they say, uh, I learned so much from my cancer, which you surely did. Yeah. But all of my friends that uh, are honest say, I would have rather not learned. I'd rather <laughs> not know. <laughs> yeah. One of my friends said, I did so much emotional growth from this, but truth to tell, I would have rather not grown emotionally and not had this illness. So. You know, since the book has been um, out there and people have been reading it and sending me emails, I've had a slight turning on that score. Not around the corner, though, <laughs> but all the time I was writing it and all the time uh, going through the editing and uh, sending out requests for endorsements and blurbs. And I would say to my husband, Tony, who many of you know, he's in the back there standing up, <laughs> uh, I would trade this in a second for my health. And not just for me, but for him. Because this has been as hard on him as it has on me. But I've had this little turning because so many people have said, I've had people write to me and say, this book has changed my life. And then it makes it, it's a little harder to say, yeah, well, I'd trade it in a minute for, for yeah. my health. Yeah. So it, it is interesting. For the very first time I've had I'm opening to that question about whether this really was, um, well, I know it's the way it was supposed to be, but really the way it was supposed to be in terms of my being able to um, contribute and help others. Yeah. Yeah. I think about a friend of mine. I don't know if Kathy came this morning. Kathy, did you come? A friend of mine. No, another Kathy. Yet, yet another Kathy. <laughs> friend of mine with an unexpected midlife, different kind of undesirable mm -hmm. illness, said she'd read the book. She said, really, did a tremendous amount of good, long-term Buddhist practitioner. But to have somebody put it in, put it specifically in the terms of the Dharma mm -hmm. was a very big boost up for oh, her. Good. And she also would rather not have. <laughs> in, everybody yeah. would rather not have. Um, yeah. Yeah. So for the people who don't know, I didn't properly mm. introduce you. <laughs> this is Tony Bernhardt. And people, in the beginning, I said Tony Bernhardt was coming today. And people said, yeah, yeah, because they assumed it was Tony <laughs> Bernhardt. So I had to go through the whole Tony and Tony, uh, Tony and Tony. This is Tony Bernhardt who frequently teaches mm -hmm. here. That's right. Uh, uh, let me say something yeah. by way of introducing myself. I did the math on the way over. And it was almost 18 years ago to the day that I made my first trip to Spirit Rock. I think it was Halloween wow. of 1992. And I was also thinking, well, how did I know how to get here? You didn't look it up on the internet. I have no recollection of how I figured out where it was or how to get here. I just knew the name from someone. And there were two, it was a day of meta practice, and there were these two women sitting up here, and one of them was named Sylvia Morston, and the other was Sharon Salzberg. I didn't know who either of you were, and meta seemed a little strange to me. <laughs> I remember walking out on, we would go out during the breaks, and we were supposed to repeat these phrases, and I thought, this is oddly this is a little nutty, but at the same time, I, 
I like this. So I, you know, it was, so that was my first trip to Spirit Rock. And I should <laughs> tell people, or I was seeing if you were going to tell them, that today is your first trip here in nine years. Yes, and it was uh, the last, I, I did my crying in the car on that score. It was very hard to make that turn and first see the horses. And mm -hmm. there were some new things. There wasn't this administration building. And, but of course, this wonderful place looks the same. Um, in, well, just a little bit of background. Tony and I took a trip in May of 2001. And I got, we went to Paris, which was a very big thing for us. We really weren't travelers. <clears throat> and I assume everyone can hear me, right? Because I have a mic on? Okay. And I got sick the second day there, and it just seemed to be, and maybe was, perhaps just an ordinary flu. Um, and I had rented a studio apartment over the internet for us to stay in, and that is indeed where I stayed for almost the whole three weeks, except for pretty much a trip to the doctor. And... We just thought it was an acute flu, everybody did. And when I got home, I had a bit of a relapse and then I seemed to get better again. And so by now it was the beginning of July and I had been lucky enough to get in the lottery retreat uh, with that the IMS teachers, Joseph and Sharon, and that year Kamala Masters and Carol Wilson and Steve Armstrong were the other teachers. And we decided I was well enough to come to this retreat because I really did feel better. You know, the, the, um, I had to decide, the big decision was, could I walk up the hill from the dining hall to the residence halls? And it was um, on the third day of that retreat, because it started on a Friday, on a Monday, I woke up and felt sick again, but sick in a different way, in a chronic -y way, um, because I didn't have those acute, I didn't have a fever and a sore throat. I just felt like I'd been hit with a Mack truck, like I just couldn't move out of the bed very easily. And I had brought a notebook with me, because I like to um, take notes, uh, the teacher's Dharma talks. Um, or mostly when I get back to my room, oh, and get that gem down. And so because I had that notebook, I started to write in it about how I was feeling. That's actually, a, it, those notes are in chapter two of the book because uh, I, I happened to have a diary of this turning point in my life where uh, I just realized I wasn't well in a very, in a kind of, in a deep way, in a profound way that wasn't just acute. Um, so yes, it was here that that happened. And uh, in these nine years, this is, I've taken some long trips. I was under the care of a doctor at Stanford for a while, so those trips were pretty harrowing. But uh, this trip here today is um, it's big for me, not uh, just emotionally, but physically. I generally don't leave Davis, which is where we live. Yeah. You know, I have an, an old, I have a memory of the day with Sharon here. Mm -hmm. Actually, because I have a photo of the two of us <laughs> that someone took that day, and it's right up on the wall where you know near my desk and. Uh, it's a lovely photo, and she's my teacher, so I like to look at it. Yeah. So I know that that day happened in my visual memory. I can. I also remember a day that you and Tony and I met in what was then the bookstore. Do you remember that? We had a day. We oh were, yes, what you were we meeting about. Oh, okay. You gave some evening classes. Uh, th these were evening classes on. Was it the Brahma Viharas, Tony? I think it was because I remember <laughs> you talking about... Um, hmm. Well, now I'm not sure what it was. I, but there was a subject, you know. I mean, 
We've got plenty of lists, don't we? <laughs> so it was one of the lists. And Tony and I drove from Davis. Um, maybe it was an eight for eight weeks, and we would meet in the in the bookstore with you. And maybe there were only two or three other people there. There weren't so there. many people. There weren't so many people. Yeah. But you and I and Tony were there. We were there. I remember yeah. that. I... And I remember a conversation about preferences and whether it was all right to go into an ice cream store <laughs> and prefer vanilla over chocolate. <laughs> and we had a, a back and forth. I think there was disagreement over that. <laughs> you know, we could have. That made perfect sense to me. So uh, just to bring people up uh, on the historical mm -hmm. part of this, you took ill um, more or less these nine years. You're a little better this year than last, I think. Uh, last year, if, if Sylvia had invited me last year, I would not have been able to come. Um, I really was uh, bedbound, which I still am a lot of the time. This trip today means that I'll be in bed for two or three days, but that's okay because I want to be here and I can. So I am a bit better. We think it may be due to um, intensive acupuncture treatments I've been getting that have um, made, given me a kind of underlying energy that fingers, well, when I first started to improve, we thought, oh, this is it. But we've done that, you know, half a dozen times. And now I don't know, it's been 10 months and I don't seem to be I'm not positive anymore that I will recover but uh, from this particular treatment, but it seems to have given me an underlying energy so that I can do things even though I feel just as sick. I feel very sick right now, but I'm here and I'm glad to be here. Yeah, you know, one of so, the things that you write about, I think, mm -hmm. so poignantly, been a while. This is the first time I see the whole really finished thing. Yes. I'm happy to have it. Save Sylvia book. Tony. And you're right, it's beautiful. <laughs> but I did, of course, I read the I read the text yes. a number of times. Yes. And my recollection is that you talk specifically ab about the, the 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 experience for people with chronic illness of uh, hope springs eternal. That you suddenly think, ha ha, now I'm going to be better. This is it. This is it. And, Probably a million people sent you, you should go to this, you should do that. <laughs> Oil pulling. Any of you know that? <laughs> well, since I, I'll come back to what you said, but one of the things that's happened since the book is out there in the world, and my daughter created a website for me, and so you can, people can eat get my email address off of it. And I could divide the emails into several different categories, people who want to diagnose me. <laughs> yes, I've been tested for X, Y, and Z many, many times. Thank you very much. And then Lyme um, disease. Is Lyme is a big one, yeah. And um, people want to diagnose me, and people want to say uh, lovely things about the book. And then people who are um, suffering terribly and just want my help. Um, and there are other categories, but one category are people offering treatments. And so far, the strangest of them has been oil pulling, where you put oil, like coconut oil, in your mouth and keep it in there for 30 minutes, <laughs> spit it out, and out will go all of the bacteria and toxins and viruses from your body. <laughs> you wrote me about that. <laughs> I did. I couldn't resist. I thought this is really, yeah. I mean, you. you <laughs> yeah, but you know. The oil pulling isn't in the book because <laughs> that's a later arising suggestion. But um, <laughs> I won't say whether I'm trying it. Um, <laughs> but um, part of being part of the chronic illness, and by when I say chronic illness, I'm really including people with chronic conditions that sometimes aren't con considered illnesses or health problems of any kind is it's um, you really have to uh, or I have had to uh, develop equanimity 
in regard to the success or failure of different treatments. And uh, this roller coaster ride that Tony and I uh, went on early on, and we've been much better with the acupuncture, and it's, uh, the result has been a lot less mental suffering. I was on an uh, antiviral treatment supervised by a doctor at Stanford and, and seemed to improve greatly at first. And as I've done uh, several times, I announced to my two grown children, you know, I'm getting better because I, I still, there's still, there's still lingering guilt about having gotten sick and dropped out of their lives in a lot of ways, um, not in other ways, but in some ways, being active and being an active grandparent. Um, so as soon as I think I'm going to get better, I just can't control announcing that this is going to happen. And then um, when it doesn't happen, uh, the, uh, the, with the antiviral, I don't think despair is too strong a word. Um, with some of the other treatments, maybe not. And so this time when I started on this acupuncture, um, you know, nine years has taught me a little bit. And one is to just, take each day as it comes and if I'm feeling a little better that's good but not to expect to feel that way the next day and just um, enjoy enjoy the, the extent to which I feel better but not have um, expectations about the future and with this acupuncture I did have this improvement the first three months and I know had it been five years ago that Tony and I would have gone through this same, all right, let's make the, or I don't think he did this, but making <laughs> the announcement and, you know, and then, whoo. so uh, it's been an equanimity practice for me. See, I actually want to talk about specifically, yeah. I'm remembering this because mm -hmm. I want to say something about this, but uh, I want to position everything that we're saying within the context of uh, this is the second week of us uh, in this in this group studying the paramitas as I mm. speak. I'm going to pass around. If you don't have one of these, take one of these and bring it back with you next week when you come. Because on the back side are the refuges and precepts. Da -da -da. Oh. And on the front are the ten qualities of, a ver of a developed virtue. Mm -hmm. And I said, let's take these five weeks that I'm here to talk about all these ten qualities of virtue and how they are developed uh, inadvertently, or in, I don't know if advertently <laughs> is, another, is the opposite of inadvertently, uh, on purpose or accidentally as a result yeah. of our lives. And when I was thinking about coming this morning, when I was last week we talked about a constellation of two or three of them, this morning I thought about how we're going to position Tony's story. Mm -hmm. So one of them was equanimity, which is the tenth mm. of these, developing equanimity, because I, I don't have my glasses because I left them in the car, uh, because it says the proximal cause of developing equanimity is uh, experiencing the... No, you read it? No, it's probably yeah. readers, yeah. Okay. I'll be all right. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. Experiencing the happiness of... Um, impartiality by paying attention to the whole truth of every moment, uh, especially intuiting and acknowledging that things are beyond our control. This is a cosmos mm. in which things unfold beyond our control. So to, presumably this is the, the, how the Buddha would have put it, to, right. to realize that, uh, that part of wisdom is to say, this is what I've got. Right. I can want as much as I, you know, I, but... The, what you what you point out, I think, very eloquently in the book, and I hope you're going to read parts of it, is that the the hazard of wanting is the fact of disappointment. On the right. other hand, you can't say from now on I'm giving up hope, especially right. when you're sick. Yeah. And I I was thinking of there's a line in uh, the Four Quartets where Eliot says, uh, "Abandon all hope because to hope would be to hope for the wrong thing," and sometimes mm -hmm. I get that, and sometimes I don't. What do you mean, I hope for the wrong thing? 
of what you, I mean, you clearly hope to get better. I do. I hope you do, do. too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no matter how many people you help with your impartial acceptance of the truth of the moment, right. may you now get better and, and go on. So it's, and it's, I think, a very hard thing to say. It's impossible to say don't hope. Of course we hope. Right. But to say, listen, hoping and being disappointed is a part of this trip. Um, yes. So not don't yeah. hope so you won't be disappointed, but hope, what do you got to lose? And you'll get disappointed and you'll deal with it. But if we didn't hope, you wouldn't investigate. For all I know, you're swishing coconut oil. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Well, maybe it's um, not clinging to the hope. That's, I suppose, it. Yeah. 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 What to say? I'm a human being. Of course right. I hope. You know? yeah. Who doesn't hope? You know, that, uh, yeah. Uh, but I think that sharing that with people, that that saying, okay, from now on, I'm not hoping because, I'm, that that has its own pitfalls also. You know, that there's probably something about getting excited or that that, that probably is salubrious for. Mm for yeah. general immune systems. Right. <laughs> well, it's been a challenge to have people writing me with, sending me emails with these suggested treatments because it's been interesting to watch how I reach for them, even if I know that they're not for me. Yeah. You know, and and um, I've... I've Googled several of them and investigated, despite the fact that I know I'm currently on this path with this acupuncturist and her herbs and that this is what I'm going to be doing now. But uh, it's hard not to be, um, well, you have to pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> really have to pay attention <laughs> and, and um you know, balance and stay on that middle path, really. Because yeah, who knows? The yeah. next person might write something that you really... Right. Uh, yes. Who knows? Oil pushing or something. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> two, two, uh, two, two directions I want to go in mm -hmm. this conversation so we can do A or B first. Mm -hmm. One is I wanted to ask you, which of these parameters do you think even you didn't want it. I wish I didn't have this. Definitely equanimity. Definitely compassion, don't you think? Which of them, what, have been, mo have most, been more most... cultivated as a result oh. of this? Well, I think equanimity and compassion are probably in a tie. All right. <laughs> because they're very... Um, equanimity, I've talked about a bit about how that's how I've learned to hold how I'm going to feel from day to day, how a treatment is going to affect me from day to day, how other people are going to react to me from day to day. Um, so equanimity has been essential, but in my, in my heart, um, uh, I think compassion has been most important and compassion for my for my sick body and for my um, and and for the painful emotions that come along with um, having an illness that no one seems to know how to treat and so you know that's um, what I've learned is that, when certain mind states arise, like uh, frustration, I used to get angry at the frustration. And that was like a double whammy of pain, you know, of, of mental suffering. Yeah, so I've, what, I've what I've worked on is developing compassion even for those painful mind states. In the same, it was a little easier actually to learn to treat my physical difficulties with compassion. Harder to learn to treat the, the mental stuff because it just really tight-fisted grip it gets on you. And so, um, and, and the other thing I'd say is that people who have been writing to me about the book who have medical problems, 
they seem to, the, the compassion practices in the book seem to be what resonate with them most. See, I, I, that, that part I'm sure everybody gets about if we have actual physical pain, we can feel really heartfelt compassion for oneself. Look, I'm in pain. If there's a mental state that's present, there's a part that's, that's marking us, at least for me. Suppose I, I, I realize that I have a mental state of aggravation about something or other, and I realize, because I know better, if I would just let go of this preference, I wouldn't be suffering. Right. But I can't let go. Yeah. So it's as if I know better than this. You know, let go, then you won't suffer if you just let go, and I'm not doing it. And then I think to myself, a million years of spiritual practice, worthless. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I know that one. I think that's what, I, that actually yeah. is one of the pitfalls of a million years of spiritual practice. Mm. I think I shouldn't be doing this. Right. I shouldn't be furious at this person because furious is no good for them, mm. for me, for the world, right. for peace. But yeah. I'm furious. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there's a way of, uh, that that's even, I can see that that's much harder. It is. Yeah, because, um, I don't know, I'm just more attached to my mental states than to my <laughs> physical state, I guess. So it's harder because it's harder to see that that's what you're doing, yeah. that you're reacting with aversion to whatever um, mental state has arisen. Yeah. So uh, it's hard. It just it takes a lot of... Well, it takes practice and mindfulness and all those words, that, you know. So I want to ask you, now, yeah. now I want to ask you about, specifically about the book. Here you've been yeah. sick, alas, for nine years. And the when people finish reading the book, they'll say, aha, I see how Tony's spiritual practice, actually the insights and the practices that she learned from Dharma practice helped her out. Maybe I could do that too. So those practices must have been helping you out for some period of time before you thought to yourself, ha-ha, I could write a book about mm. that. How did that happen that you suddenly thought, um, ha-ha? Well, it, actually the first... So when I got sick, I'd been um, a practicing Buddhist for almost 10 years. And um, uh, the first four or five years after getting sick, maybe two, 2001 to, to 2005 or so, I, I really felt like a failed Buddhist, I have to say. It's as if all of the, uh, everything I learned, I felt just was suddenly irrelevant. I had this twice a day sitting practice and I was very disciplined about it. It was a joke in the family about my children's weddings days, I was, well, we have to be sure we allow those two sits for mom, you know. Um, but when I wound up, <laughs> yeah, file that away, you can do it. <laughs> but when I uh, wound up in bed and uh, after this coming home from this retreat, and I was supposed to go, I was a law professor at UC Davis, and I was supposed to start teaching in August because we're semester system. And but when I got home, um, I, we re, the dean and I realized that was not going to happen, and so I didn't go back to work. And um, those first four or five years, I I didn't feel like a Buddhist. I felt just like um, a sick person who'd lost control of her life as if I ever had control, you know. But I'd lost control of my life. I'd ruined my husband's life. I really, um, I was letting the uh, law school down and let, and my, in two, when, at the point I got sick, I had my first grandchild uh, living in LA. She was six months old and I had all these plans to be active with her, failed, so failed grandmother. I really was, um, I, I was in a pit, <laughs> but uh, I was busy because we were busy trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And so there were hours spent in doctor's offices and consultations, this constant, because, you know, when you get sick, no one, no one, including, it's not just yourself, but no one else believes that you're not going to get better. I still don't know why I didn't get better. 
So um, there's a lot of time spent uh, eliminating other things that you could have and, and consult, oh, well, the endocrinologist didn't help you. Well, let's try a neurologist, you know, because no one really knew. And I, it took about four years for me to begin to accept that how I was that very day had to be my starting point. And it was, that was the moment that I began to um, bring the Buddhist teachings back into my life. And uh, I, it's very hard for me to read. It's, it might seem odd. You can write a book, but it's difficult to read because it's a kind of sustained concentration. And so with the exception of um, a chapter on Byron Katie, who's, who isn't Buddhist, but her work has been helpful to me, every reference in here to uh, a teaching or a book, they're all books that I read or notes that I took at Dharma retreats or from my memory, all from before I got sick. So this is not a book, there was no research done for this book, <laughs> except to get out notes I'd taken and I, I wrote it on my bed with the notes all around and notes and a lot from memory and then I might think, didn't Sylvia talk about something in this book? And then I'd go find that book but it, they were all books that I'd already read. And so I, I just um, began to immerse myself again in Buddhist teachings, some of which were, had not been very important to me before I got sick. And suddenly they became a, like Tonglen practice, if some of you know what that is. I had learned it, but I didn't use it and. And I rediscovered all these things. And it's, this is true. I re, one day I reached over and put my laptop on my, I call it my bed top. And I put it on me and I opened a document and I wrote, How to be sick. <laughs> Which, I, you know, I think usually people write the books and then you have to figure out what to call it. Well, no, I wrote, How to be sick. And I, you know, this was my plan. Use the Buddha's teachings to help people. And, but I, I felt too sick to do it. And I hit save and put it away. And I think it was another two or three months I began to write on sheets of paper. I, I didn't write the chapters in the order that they're here. But it might be a week in which I was really uh, using a lot of metta, using the metta phrases that I began to learn that day, um, using metta for directing it toward myself and then maybe toward some doctors who I wasn't too happy with, that kind of thing. And so I would start to write about metta. And then maybe the next day, I, so it was kind of a hodgepodge at first in terms of what I just wrote about whatever um, practices I was working on or for myself, really. And it evolved out of that. I'm really no. glad to hear you saying it now because, you know, I've talked to you about it over the years. Yeah. But that it may, as I was just now listening to you, it seems so clear that there's a moment at which, not that you didn't continue to want to get well, right. but there's a moment at which the mind says, okay, getting well is not happening. So now I say, I had to be sick. Because everyone mm -hmm. that I tell the name of the book to already loves it before they start <laughs> reading the book. Because yeah. I, told, I told this story here last week. Mm -hmm. I, was, it's this, I think I told it here, told it somewhere. On Rosh Hashanah, I was in the ladies' room of the Congregation Road of Shalom here in, in, in San Rafael. And there was a woman waiting for the handicap because she was on a, a walker. Mm -hmm. And someone coming down, passing her on, leaving, said, oh, hello, so-and-so. Uh, I hope you get better soon. Mm -hmm. And the woman on the walker said, in a plain voice, she said, from what I've got, you don't get better. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, I, you know, and, I, and I don't know the woman. I thought to myself... 
I was looking to hear what's the affect in what she just said. Yeah. Is she being sarcastic? Is she saying bitter, more, bitter, yeah. or, you know, or morose, mm. or joking, or what is it? But it's just like a plain thing, and I thought maybe that's what it is. It's a plain thing. From what I've got, you don't get better. Once you have Parkinson's, you don't get right. better. Once right. you have MS, you don't get better. Yeah. You work with it one way. Once you have diabetes, your liver, your pancreas does not rehabilitate itself. Yeah. Well, you know, you don't get better. So many things. I was thinking about having, I don't have any idea. If you had to make a number of people, there are what, 280 million people in America. Mm -hmm. How many people have things that they're not getting better from? Do you know? Well, I happened to read it <laughs> just the other day. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it, well, oh, I know. It, I had um, a fellow named Alicia Goldstein. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, all yeah. right. He writes books on mindfulness-based stress reduction. And he is um, a Huffington Post blogger. And somehow someone told him about my book, so he did an interview with me, which these days means someone sends you an email with questions, and then you write the answers. That's good, because you have a little time <laughs> yeah, to think. Yeah, it's wonderful for me. <laughs> and then he printed that, and in his, but he had to write, and you know, for uh, someone who has the, um, the burden of blogging, that's why I don't blog, I don't want the burden, um, to be able to print what someone else has said, it's great. It's, that's that week at Huffington Post done for him, right? But he did have to provide an introductory paragraph. And that introductory paragraph said that 90 million people in this country suffer from uh, some kind of physical uh, difficulty, physical illness, physical condition. And... It said, and that doesn't include mental disabilities, just physical. So I don't know whether his number's right, but that was in well, his introduction. And this morning before, So I've been using it. Before, before you yeah. came, when I first came this morning and I told people that you were going to be here an hour later and that uh, I said uh, that, uh, that I thought that your situation, although unique, not that many people have chronic fatigue. A lot of people right. have. However, a lot of people have chronic fatigue. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people have all these other nameable illnesses. But all of us have the illness called life that <laughs> is a, you know, a terminal illness. And with a fair degree, if we're lucky, and or not lucky, I don't know, and don't die suddenly, it'll be a period of decrepitude Right before we die, right. and I said, "Who here has something that they can think of that they used to do that they can't do anymore?" Mm. Right, right. As, you know, and, and a lot. Right. Who here has something? Yeah, yeah quite yeah. a. I mean, yeah. because none of us can run an eight-minute mile anymore, or a bicycle right. from morning till night, or a hike from the morning yeah. till the well. night. And, and when you think of it, you get wistful. You know, still. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I it, I, yeah. I don't I I. I didn't get the chance to get wistful because it was like, <laughs> it just sort of hit me like that. Yeah. But I know uh, wistful, I know what you mean. But, you know, it's what the Buddha said, we're in bodies and they yeah. get diseased and old and uh, eventually die. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. Uh, I'm thinking that for those of us in health, the fact that we can't run anymore, all right, I can't right. run, I can walk, it's not yeah. so bad. But... Uh, but still, you see somebody running and having such a good time, and there's a moment mm. in the mind that thinks, oh, that was fun. You no, know? yeah. And they say, but yeah. now I have this. I have the fun of that. There's, yeah. a, there's a minus to correct itself. From yeah. that, even in the most minor thing that you can't do anymore. Right. So there was a certain way in which I wanted to say this is relevant to everybody, not yeah. just those people who have a diagnosis. Yeah. So they have a diagnosis of old. That's already... Something. <laughs> right. I mean, even it's not just uh, exercise, exercise types of activities. Uh, Tony and I had this dream of um, getting a sailboat because he's a, he knows how to captain a sailboat. Or he, he may be a little rusty now, but 
So that was one of our dreams to do when we retired, mm -hmm. was to do some sailing, maybe even just up and down the coast of California. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I can get wistful about that. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just that you have to trade your jogging for your fast walking and then your fast walking for your slow walking. Yeah. It's that, uh, um, you know, life happens and it happens... Uh, it's going to unfold based on causes and conditions. <laughs> well, and the, and the other big difference, of course, is for any of us who can't run anymore or are slow walking, we're, when we're sitting, we're not in pain mm -hmm. for most people. Right. And for yeah. people with a chronic illness like right. yours, or when chronic they are, pain, there are a lot of people pain. with chronic pain difficulties. They are. People with diabetes yeah. have to watch their diet every single day of the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so that, 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 that uh-oh, you walk through a door and life is not the same yeah. anymore. Yeah, I, um, one of the, I said I didn't, I got out my notes. And uh, does Achan Jumnian still come here? Yeah. Okay. Well, we used to come every year. So I, he's been coming a long time because I, I haven't seen him since 2000, I guess, would be my guess. Yeah. Um, and he would sit... I remember one year he came and he had uh, all the weights. <laughs> right, this was a practice. But I think then the next year he had discarded those. But he would talk and um, Jack would translate. And let me see if I can find this. Oh, I wanted the, you to read. I wanted the, you to read something okay. that you really like to read. Okay, uh, this is just something from, um, I wasn't planning to read this, it just seems to have come up at this point. This is in the equanimity chapter. Um, in the 1990s, when Thai forest monk Achan Jumnian came for his annual visit to Spirit Rock, I faithfully attended, bubbling over as he always was, with joy and laughter. One day, he suddenly began discoursing on equanimity. I got out a pen and took these notes. And actually, these notes, I didn't have a good notebook with me that day. It was like the back of a, and, you know, I, they were kind of, yeah, I'd written on something like that. And, and that, but I managed to, I didn't make anything up in here, I promise you, nothing. So if I, if I had, if it's in here, well, maybe I misunderstood Jack, but it was in my notes. And so I got out a pen and took these notes. When people say, Achan, let's go for a beautiful walk. Fine, I'll go. If they don't ask, that's fine too. I don't expect a walk to be any more satisfying than sitting alone. It could be hot or windy out there. If people bring me delicious food, great. If they don't, I need to diet anyway. <laughs> if I'm feeling good, that's okay. If I'm sick, that's okay, too. It's a great excuse to lie down. <laughs> These, well, I'll read a little bit more little from bit this. More. Yeah. These few sentences scribbled on a scrap of paper, as Jack Cornfield translated, have become the centerpiece of equanimity practice for me. I rediscovered the notes several years after becoming sick. Rereading them with my new circumstances in mind, I understood that the essence of equanimity is accepting life as it comes to us without blaming anything or anyone, including ourselves. I'd been getting despondent when a treatment didn't work and becoming angry when a doctor didn't live up to my expectations. I was trying to control the uncontrollable. Some treatments work, some don't. Some doctors come through for us, some don't. The challenge is to not let this insight slip into indifference, because indifference is a subtle aversion to life as it comes to us. Indifference turns the serene acceptance of things are as they are into things are as they are, so who cares? This is why my notes from Achan Jumnian's visit and my memory of the joy that emanated from him are still so inspiring. Now I cultivate equanimity by saying, if this medication helps, that will be great. If it doesn't, 
no blame. It wasn't what my body needed. If this doctor turns out to be responsive, that will be nice. If he or she doesn't, that's okay. Any doctor is going to be how he or she is going to be. It's not in my control. See, that's brilliant. The, the whole thing is brilliant. And that, that point about the near enemy, that's the Buddhist term for it. The near right. enemy for equanimity is indifference. Yeah. You know, say it's like the, Ajahn Sumedho used to say, it's like this. Which, which made me understand mm. it's like this, you know, it's like yeah. it is, which is very different from the teenager who says, whatever, you know, which is really, you know, the, which has yeah. that element of aversion. <laughs> yeah, and I had to work through that the, those first few years I was talking about where um, there was a lot of aversion and uh, all it did was add, add mental suffering to the physical right. difficulties, right. you know, right. we all know that. It's just, um, I, I think one of the things that I that, that I learned from writing the book, and just, I, I hadn't practiced read that passage, I wasn't planning to read it today, so I pro- probably haven't read it for several months, is that this is a practice. Because <laughs> as I was reading that, I was thinking, Oh, yeah, okay. I was like I was learning it myself for the first time. I see that you so, had a sticky in there that's something that you did want to read. Well, you know, I put a sticky in here because you, I thought you said we were going to talk about uh, patience. Well, that was you one of the parameters yeah. I thought we'd bring up. Yeah. Okay, so go ahead. right. So the, in, my, in the chapter on... Um, compassion, in which I focus on developing compassion for, ourse- for yourself, for compassion for myself. There's another chapter on Tonglen, which is more about reaching both to yourself and out to others. But the, the, um, I had um, a lot of difficulty at first feeling any compassion for my uh, for what was happening to me. I blamed myself and uh, so um, in this chapter I have several practices uh, on developing compassion and uh, for yourself and I found that this the parami of patience, uh, the more patient I was, uh, the more I could feel that it was a, it really was a compassion practice. So I know they may well, you know the lists. <laughs> they get to bleed into each other. So you want so to read I, a little bit. Yeah, I could read a little bit from this. Um, the second way I cultivate compassion for myself is to practice kanti, usually translated as patience. Warning, it's part of another list. <laughs> kanti is one of the ten practices of perfection. I, I should say my warning is because I, I and it's, come to be the case, many people who read this book aren't Buddhist and don't know anything about the tradition. So it is really a, I think, I always thought of everything as, think of it as also introducing this concept to people. Uh, Kanti is one of the ten practices of perfection, also called the ten paramis. Two Two of the four sublime states, which are subjects of previous chapters, Metta and Upaka are also on this list. The paramis are ten qualities that a Buddha or enlightened one has perfected. Is that a... I hope that's the yeah, one. Yeah, no, no. no, it's true. It's true. The, okay. the, 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 okay. the, root, the, the root of the word means has brought to completion. Wonderful. Um, the other seven are generosity, moral conduct, renunciation, wisdom, energy, truthfulness, and determination. And of course, as with all these lists, there are other words that sometimes get used to to translate them. In Being Nobody Going Nowhere, Ayakema said of the perfections, I love this, we have their seed in us. If that were not so, we would be cultivating barren ground. Ayakema was a native German Jew who, after escaping the Nazis, became a Theravadan, a Theravada Buddhist nun in Sri Lanka. She translates Kanti as patient endurance. So that's another, I don't know if you heard of that. 
It's another way to translate it. At a retreat in Northern California in 1996, she told us that maintaining patient endurance is the most difficult part of Buddhist practice. So you could use the word patience if you prefer that. But, uh, but she said this several times on the retreat, that this was the most difficult part of Buddhist practice. Ayakema's rendering transforms what could be seen as a passive state of mind, just be patient, into an active practice. Patient endurance suggests that in addition to being patient, that is, serene and uncomplaining, two synonyms for the word patient, we actively endure. The dictionary definition of endure includes to survive when faced with difficulties and to experience hardship without giving up. I also like to compare the practice of patient endurance to the instruction given by Cesar Milan, the dog whisperer. We have a hound dog, so we were very much in need of his help. (laughs) They're very stubborn. (laughs) He tells dog owners that the most effective way to work with their pets is to maintain a calm and assertive mind state. In other words, take charge, but in a calm and patient manner. I include patient endurance on my list of compassion practices because it can help alleviate our suffering as we face the many difficulties that result from being chronically ill. One recurring difficulty is the uncommon number of hours spent navigating the healthcare system, whether it's trying to get approval from an insurance company for a particular treatment or encountering a long wait or other challenge at a medical facility. Cultivating patient endurance can help caregivers too because they often find themselves in the role of patient advocate for their loved one. In general, I found that when dealing with the healthcare system, if I don't endure the assertive part of Cesar Milan's instruction, I often don't get decent service. At the same time, if I'm not patient, the calm part of his instruction, the frustration stemming from the interaction exacerbates my symptoms. Indeed, patience is a strong antidote to anger, a state of mind that causes so much suffering. And then I go on to tell, to illustrate with a story that maybe is a little too long for us about a time when I really had to muster all the patient endurance I could in order to get uh, my uh, HMO to approve an off-label use of a drug that came from New Zealand and... um, People will yeah. empathize with that because everybody has wrestled with the healthcare system. Yeah. Listen, yeah. it's eleven o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, I was gonna. I hoped that we would have time for questions. <coughs> you will stay and meet people and sign the book. Will you sure, not? absolutely. Uh, um, have you signed books yet? I I did. I um, I live in David.